0: 15. We're picking up the story of Abraham in Genesis 15 right after, well not right after, but after a, a few chapters of Abraham being called by God. You know when God called Abraham, he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you so that you can be blessed and enjoy yourself. Is that what he said earlier? so that you will be a blessing, right? That's why God has us here. We do enjoy him. We enjoy fellowship with God and the blessings of salvation and the hope of eternal life. But ultimately, our calling is that we might be a blessing. So Abraham has this in mind. He's going to be given the land. He was given a promise by God. This land, you will inherit and you will have descendants here and all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, right before Genesis 15, he goes to battle. He's now fighting. Remember the five kings against four with Chedorlaomer and his, al- his allies. And Lot had gotten now in Abraham into this mess. So Abraham is in a bind. He's thinking, "I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a blessing to all nations. And now I'm fighting with these nations, and we haven't conquered. And when will this inheritance be realized?" So it says in the spirit of prophecy at this point in his life. It says, Abraham's mind was disturbed with harassing thoughts. Disturbed with harassing thoughts. And he's wondering at this point, am I going to be the special object of the vengeance of these kings who were defeated in the battle that Abraham was victorious in? Disturbed with harassing thoughts. Does that sound like a place you have been at some point? And, or somebody you know and love, disturbed with harassing thoughts. How do we correct thoughts that intrude upon our minds, that are harassing, that are dark, that are depressing, that are stressful and anxious and fearful? Well, the Bible tells us. Let's begin in Genesis 15 and write in verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, fear, what's the next word? Not. Fear not, Abram. There's your answer. It's that simple. Hear the voice of God saying, fear not. He goes on to say, I am your shield and your very great reward. We'll come back to that, but turn, keep your finger in Genesis 15 and turn over to 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 also. This is a powerful text about fear and the opposites of fear. I didn't say the opposite, fear. I said the opposites. We're going to see three opposites of fear in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7. It says, for God hath not given us a spirit of what? Fear. Fear. So what has he given us to replace the fear? It is power. It is love And it is a sound mind. Power and love and a sound mind. Let's start with a sound mind. Apparently having a sound mind is one of the opposites of fear. The fear that paralyzes us. Where we feel like we're a victim to the harassing thoughts that intrude and dominate. And we're like we're not even choosing our own thoughts. You know that feeling. Well we can have a sound mind replace the fear. Do you know about the frontal lobe of the brain? The fear is happening in the limbic system, particularly the amygdala of the brain, the fear circuits that fire off and predominate and give us that anxious feeling. But the logical, rational capacity, the spiritual claiming of promise and grasping on by faith to the hopeful hand of Jesus Christ happens in the frontal lobe. And when you do that, when you have the frontal lobe engaged, What the Bible says about be anxious for nothing starts to transpire, and the amygdala are calmed. The two are opposites, amygdala, or limbic system, and the frontal lobe. That's a beautiful promise that God says, come now, let us reason together, and we can have a sound mind prayerfully and powerfully by following his program and plan for us. Now, did you know that if we hang out in that place of fear and anxiety, it literally kills people? It reduces your your immune system. It releases, uh, it releases stress hormones. And watch this. Did you see this study that came out just a couple of weeks ago? This is from the CDC. The strongest risk factor for death from COVID is, of course, obesity. My friends, I'm going to hurt your feelings to save your life. We've got to get a handle on that. I'm not saying that as somebody who's got it all together either. We all struggle with appetite and the lust of the flesh. But we've got to win that battle because that's the number one risk factor. But do you know what the second is? Do you see it there highlighted? Anxiety and fear-related disorders. And that's somebody who's in the hospital, and they're panicking, and they're fearful, and they're anxious. That's the second leading risk factor for death from COVID. That really shocked me. And I was really happy to see Liberty and Health Alliance, which I am privileged to be a part of, have a guest host or a guest on on the program on the live stream just a couple weeks ago, Dr. Dana. Did anybody catch this, by the way? Some of you saw this. If you want to see this clip of Dr. Dana talking about mental health conditions during COVID and how to gain victory over them, because this isn't a whole talk on mental health this morning. I've got to plug this so you guys can go there for the source of victory in a program from a professional psychologist, Dr. Dana. Just go to my YouTube channel. It's called Scott Ritzem, A Belt of Truth, and you'll find that video as one of the most recent releases. Watch that video, okay? That's a very, very helpful one. Now, back in 2 Timothy 1, Verse 7, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but what else has he given us? Power and love. Let's go to love now. Isn't love what God is? Isn't that everything? Like it's the very core of the great controversy. God is love at the beginning of the Conflict of the Ages series. God is love at the end of the Conflict of the Ages series. The first three words, the last three words. First John 4, verse 8, the very definition of God is his character of love. So let me ask you a question then where does fear come from god or satan oh that's an easy question isn't it if god is love then fear is of the devil and i don't mean fear god and give glory to him that is a healthy respect and admiration and awe of the living god we want to foster that kind of the fear of god but not living with fear and anxiety satan wants to do that to oppress us like abraham is oppressed as we read there, with the forebodings and the fear. Same teeter-totter action happens in the brain when it comes to love. Whether it's rational capacity and logical thinking and claiming Bible promises and thinking correct truths and speaking correct truths to calm the amygdala. Also love, altruism, thinking of others, doing good deeds, beholding a God of love. All of these things activate the frontal lobe and the limbic system calms right down. It's a beautiful thing. Doesn't the Bible say that in 1 John 4, 8, 14, 4 18? What does 1 John four eighteen say? Perfect love casts out fear. That's what happens in the brain. The Bible is a, is, a, is a psychology text, isn't it? Way before modern psychology thought they had some insights. Then there's power power and love and a sound mind. Let's go back to Genesis because you'll see the power. In Genesis 15, verse 1, God says to Abraham, Do not fear, but realize I am thy shield. I am thy exceeding great reward. The shield, the protection, the power of God is right with you, Abraham. God is coming near to Abraham. He is using that famous and beloved phrase, I am. What does that make you think of? Jesus is the I am. Did you know this? He said to the Pharisees, Before Abraham, what? Before who was? Ah, Abraham. God was there even before he called Abraham as the I am, Jesus himself. Now let's read. And by the way, that's all we need. We don't even need thy shield and thy very great reward. All we need to do is hear him say, I am. I am the creator. I am the redeemer. I am here. I am. And that's enough to take a deep breath and say, I'm in the hands of the almighty God who speaks worlds into existence. He's got this. This is no sweat for him. Verse 2. And Abraham said... So they're having a conversation here. Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? So God had promised him an inheritance in the land, and he says, I go childless, and the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and, lo, one born in my house is mine heir. You can imagine him sounding a little bit like that here, right? It says in verse 2, and Abraham said, and then in verse 3, and Abraham said. He, He took two turns in a row there, didn't he? He's just kind of spewing all this. He's concerned. He's fretful. God had just said to him, Abraham, "I am, I am the the shield. Your great reward is coming. It's it's with me. I am your great reward." But Abraham didn't really hear that, did he? He just kind of goes at it and then goes at it. Doesn't he? Just pedaled to the metal on this one fear after the next. But even after God had reassured him, Abraham's mind was so oppressed by forebodings that he could not now grasp a promise with unquestioning confidence as he had previously. He's in a dark place here, isn't he? Let's read verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This this Eliezer shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. God reaffirms the promise. He says, Abraham, claim the promise. I'm going to speak it to you again. We should speak these promises. In verses 2 and 3, shouldn't Abraham have been Claiming the Bible promises, and I'm not mad at Abraham. Judging Abraham, he's a great man of God. He's a whole lot better of a man than I. But there's an example of how we want to go right to the promise, not to the fears. Well, then, verse five, it says, and he brought him forth abroad. Maybe yours says outside in the modern translations. This is where he's going to talk to him about the the children as numbers of the stars, but. Just going outside, just the beginning of verse 5, being in nature. We could do a whole seminar right now on nature exposure and the benefits to mental health, the lowering of stress, the improving of even cognitive health, happiness. There are so many benefits to being in nature and getting outside. I found it fitting that Abraham said and Abraham said, and he's going on the fears, and God says, come outside with me. Maybe he's saying that to us. Maybe we need to do a nature outing Sunday afternoon after the event if we don't have a long drive, or maybe we need to plan a, camp- a camping outing or something of that, that nature to clear our head, to get our mental and spiritual state in place. Is it any wonder, by the way, that we've been given a country living message, given all of the benefits of nature to spirituality and to our physical and mental health We can commune with God in nature. When you look up at the stars, I love this time of year as the days are getting uh, shorter because you can see the dark. I'm usually sleeping straight through the dark part of the night, right, during uh, June and July, but now we can be outside and see the stars. And I I have the privilege of, we live in the country, and I have an outdoor wood burner. And during the winter, I have to walk outside a lot to feed the wood stove with the wood. So I get to look at the stars so many times in our mid-Michigan country home. And it's such a blessing to just have that moment. Every time I look up at the stars, I think of God. Like, every time I look at a screen, I don't necessarily think of God at that moment. I ought to, but it's so easy to see and sense the presence of the Almighty God when you're looking at the Almighty evidence of His power. So you've got a powerful God. Don't fear. He has not given you a spirit of fear. He's given you the power. He loves you. He is your friend, the friend of sinners, and he's given you the sound mind so we can think clearly, especially when we get out into nature, when we're not bogged down by screen use. I'll talk about that this afternoon and tomorrow morning when we do some talks on media. Let's read verses 5 and 6 now. So he brought him outside and said, Look now, Abram, toward heaven. And tell the stars, count them, if, they're, if thou art able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now finally Abraham trusts here, doesn't he? And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for what? Oh, that's the gospel. You know this from Romans, don't you? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Righteousness by what? By faith. He believed He trusted. He had faith in the promise of God. It says elsewhere in Romans... Well, that was covered up by the graphic, but it's in chapter 4 later on in 24 and 25, if I remember correctly. Now it was not written for the sake of, for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Verse 24, there it is. It shall be imputed. The righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Do you believe Jesus was raised up from the dead by the Father? Who was delivered up because of our offenses? Who was raised up because of our justification that means we've been made right we've been set right we've been put right justification righteousness by faith verse 7 and he said unto him I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it do you notice how after Abraham expresses his faith God doesn't just leave it He doesn't go. Okay, we're good now. Once saved, always saved. See you later. No, he says, let's continue the conversation. He says, I am the Lord who brought thee out of your earth. And then Abraham says to God, because sometimes our our faith is a little weak. I think some of us could admit this. He asks, whereby shall I know? After he had had faith, he's can can you can you give me more of a sign? This is like Gideon. Can you give me a sign? that I shall inherit it. So that's the big question that sets up the blood path scenario. Abraham is asking, how will I know that I will inherit the land? How will I know that I will inherit, how that I will receive it? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. And I want to jump to verse 12. We're going to skip over the cutting of the animals and come back to that. But I want you to see in verse 12 more along the spiritual journey of Abraham here. Verse 12... And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror, and great darkness. Does yours say something like that in your translation? And horror and great darkness fell upon him. Wow, that sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? You don't hear phrases like that often in the Bible. Abraham is in this horror and great darkness place. Why? What is this symbolic of? Well, let's read on. Because it says here, Abram, know for a surety, this is verse 13, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. What land is that referring to? Egypt. And shall serve them, that's Egyptian bondage, And they shall, the Egyptians shall afflict them for how long? 400 years. I found that to be kind of a neat coincidence in light of last night's message 400 years of providence and prophecy. That was 400 years of the development of liberty, the opposite of bondage. But here was 400 years of bondage. By the way, that's not meant to put a date on 2021. We're going to the heavenly Canaan or something like that. Don't don't misunderstand. I just found it to be kind of neat. I do believe Jesus is coming soon, though. I don't think we have many years to wait. And also, that nation. Whom thy serve now? Before actually, I read verse fourteen. Think about this place where he's at in this horror and great darkness. He had just had the reassurance of faith. He now has something to cling to. So it doesn't require a conversation this time. Where Abraham said, and then Abraham said, and he's going into the fear thing right after God says, "Your children are going to be. Your descendants are going to be in bondage for four hundred years." That's bad news. To Abraham at this moment, right? He's going, what? I thought this was all going to happen, and I'm going to have a son, and then 400 years they're going to have to wait. But God's able to get right into the good news. Abraham doesn't interrupt with Abraham said and Abraham said. It says, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good, I missed verse 14, sorry, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. So the Egyptians will be judged. You get ten plagues coming down, and afterward they shall come out. Your, your descendants shall come out with great substance, and thou shalt go down to the, go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. So that was the encouraging part of the story. Abraham had enough faith to just listen. Do you sometimes just need to be still and know that he is God and just listen to God's word? And yes, we should pour out our hearts unto God as well, but to, to not be anxious for anything, but by prayer and thanksgiving present our requests to God, thanksgiving for everything God has done. It said that he would face death in peace, didn't it? And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, verse 15. We'll come back to that. Let's read verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full." That's why it's gonna take 400 years. Are you seeing the connection with the prophecy of the 400 years? The sin of the Canaanites needs to reach its full measure because God is so long-suffering. And that word, quite literally, you might say, well, the, 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 the children of the Canaanites who are being sacrificed to these demonic deities are the ones who are suffering, and the mothers, for that matter, and the people and the Canaanites themselves are suffering and their victims are suffering. But God is suffering. God is an infinitely empathetic God. He is love. He feels the feelings of his children, and the infirmities are put upon him. He says, in your affliction, I am afflicted, in Isaiah 63, verse 9. So God himself suffers long. It's not, the 400 years are not just God biding his time and waiting to torch these people and finally do his good pleasure. He does not take pleasure in the death, even of the wicked, but he wants them to turn, turn from their wicked ways. Doesn't this present such a loving picture of God's character? That's Abraham's question. Have you ever wondered, how can I have greater faith in God? How can I strengthen my faith? Just behold his goodness. When you see how patient he is with me, When you see how loving, he reaches out again and again with his open arms to receive me unto him. 400 years for these pagan, evil evil people. So my personal journey is just that. I came into the Adventist truth as somebody who was seeing a new picture of God's character. And it changed everything for me. I had been religious previously. I grew up Christian, and I had rebellious years in my teen years, but I always believed in God. But I began a new journey of faith with a deeper walk with Jesus when I saw his character as revealed in the great controversy. It's a beautiful truth we have. So God gave those Canaanites plenty of time. We know the weeds and the wheat have to grow up together unto the harvest of the last days. We might be wondering, why so long? Why? How long, O Lord? Well, the weeds and the wheat must mature because the onlookers are saying, can't we just go in and pull the weeds out But the farmer says, no, they have to both mature unto the harvest. Otherwise, people will not make the clear distinction between what is weeds and what is wheat. But since they come to maturity, you'll be able to see more evidently how nasty and destructive the weeds are and how beautiful and fruit unto the Most High the wheat are. And that's our part in this, to choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. Now, God knows the sin of the Amorites, hadn't reached his full measure, and you might wonder, well, how how do we know when the time is? We just leave that to God. Is he all-knowing? He's all-knowing. And some people say, why would a God of love permit evil and pain and suffering to exist? And atheists have hung their hat of doubt on that perplexing philosophical conundrum that they think no Christian can have an answer to. Well, I'll tell you, having read C.S. Lewis and John Calvin and, and all of the great theologians... They don't have very good answers to it. And then I found this book, The Great Controversy, by this little lady with a third grade education. And I went, whoa, why did I never think of that? God is not only all-powerful and all-loving. He is also all-wise and all-knowing. He knows when it would be too early to cut down the weeds. He knows when it would be too early to destroy the Amorites and the Canaanites. He, He lets them grow together. And that's where we just trust You know, we use logic and philosophy and and, and theology and archaeology and lots of wonderful things, prophecy, to provide evidence to the Bible faith. But there are some areas where we just go, this is an omnipotent God thing. And I'm this little brain here. I'm not going to act like I can pose a question to God and disprove Christianity. That's foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Patriarchs of Prophets 78 says that the longer men lived in sin, the more abandoned they became. This is talking about the world before the flood, but same thing with the Canaanites. The divine sentence cutting short a career of unbridled iniquity and freeing the world from the influence of those who had become hardened in rebellion was a blessing. You see, it's a blessing when God finally does come in and have to annihilate these, these inhumane, destructive, and oppressive demonic societies it was a blessing rather than a curse and the longer they lived in it the heart the worse it got and the harder the hearts became and it says also that God was both just and merciful in doing that we usually say well God's justice finally came in and put an end to all of that torment and oppression and that's true but it's also the merciful thing to do if you think about how we treat our beloved pets for example a suffering animal and we don't do this to fellow humans, of course, because it's not our place. But the Almighty God might see fit to put this society of the Canaanites, or the antediluvian world, out of, out of their own misery. And that is a loving, merciful thing to do, like we would do with a suffering animal, to putting, put it out of its misery. Okay, the blood pass ceremony. Abraham had asked, how shall I know, in verse 8, how shall I know that I shall inherit the land? Well, let's read the, the ceremony now in verse 9, 10, and 11. "'And God said unto Abraham, "'Take me an heifer of three years old "'and a she-goat of three years old "'and a ram of three years old "'and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon.' This is all of the sacrificial animals. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst. You saw the opening graphic for this presentation. It was animals cut in half, right? Divided them in the middle and laid each piece one against another, but not the birds, it says. Uh, The birds divided he not. So the other ones he divided. The others he just sacrificed and laid there. Verse 11, and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So... God's answer to Abraham's question, how will I know that I will inherit the land, is do this with the animals. You see the graphic, a different presentation of it there again. What is, what is he saying here? What is he communicating with this ancient rite? Well, by divine direction, Abraham divided, uh, sacrificed the animals, dividing the bodies and laying the pieces a little distance apart. That's what it says in Patriarchs and Prophets 137. So what is going on in this scene? Well, in verse 18, if you glance at it, it refers to this as a covenant. Do you know what a covenant is? This is a promise, this is an agreement that they are making Abraham and God. Now, one thing we can say about this ceremony is this is no ordinary sacrifice. This isn't normal where you'd put the animal on the altar and do the sacrificial ritual that they so frequently did. This is, this is a rare thing. You don't see this often in the Bible. Uh, some history might help us think through what's going on here. When you consult archeologists and his, historians of ancient history, they, they speak of rituals where the severing of animals was done as a part of an ancient land grant. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't that what Abraham asked? How will I know that I will inherit the, the land, right? So this, is what, this was done to seal or ratify a covenant, some type of severing of animals. So that's exactly what's going on with Abraham at this time, where God is asking him about the land and inheriting the land. Now, at the beginning, God had said, I am thy shield and very great reward. At the end, it's the covenant in verse 18. And God says, after they're done with the blood pass ceremony, God says, unto thy seed, this is verse 18, I have given the land. Well, that's an interesting construction of the past tense. I have given it, um, but but Abraham doesn't have it yet, does it? Does he? So so when God speaks something, can we say it's as good as done? Right there and already in Genesis fifteen, He has given it. Don't be afraid. I am thy shield and very great reward, and it's as good as done. Bookends on this whole ceremony. That's what this is about: the giving of the land. So here's what happens. Abraham, we're going to read in Patriarchs and Prophets by divine direction, Abraham sacrificed the animals, dividing the bodies. We read that. Now Abram reverently passed between the parts of the sacrifice, making a solemn vow to God of perpetual obedience. I feel so blessed to have the spirit of prophecy. That comment right there is huge. And we're going to see why in a minute. Abraham passed Through, in between the parts, walking the path, the blood path. Because with these dead sacrificial animals, this blood path ceremony, they're literally walking on blood. They're literally walking between carcasses. So this is Abraham making a promise. And the symbolism is as evident as it can be. May this be done to me if I break this promise. You see the symbolism. Jeremiah 34 actually describes this. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they have made before me, when, what covenant? When they cut the calf in twain and pass between the parts thereof. This is the only other reference in the Bible that I can find to the blood path ceremony. Cutting the animals in two and passing between the parts thereof. When men make that covenant... The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies. So if they break the covenant, they're going to be given into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the interesting, unto the fowls of heaven. What did Abraham chase off that was flying onto the carcasses? He chased off the fowls, right? So it's 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 this is not going to happen. We're gonna walk the blood path and make the promise and not be meat unto the fowls and victims of our enemies. Abraham is making the promise there when he walks the blood path. Now read in verse 17. This is the best part. And it came to pass, this is Genesis 15, verse 17, and it came to pass that when the sun went down and was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Do you know why this is so solemn and awesome? What does a flame, what does a fire represent in the Bible? This is God's presence. Our God is a consuming fire. God himself is walking between the parts, making the promise himself. God's brightness in the midst of this dark night, the horror in great darkness, God says, Abraham, when I promise it, it's as good as done. But I'm even going to come down and walk the blood path with you, after you. Abraham had that horror and great darkness and now is surrounded by the light of the presence of God. So Abraham has said, if I break the covenant, I would, I would die. And God says, as if he could break the covenant, if I break the covenant, then I would die. By the way, did God break the covenant? No. But who died? Jesus Christ died. We broke the covenant. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and he died. This is not how the the covenant was supposed to go. This is our merciful God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He dies for our sin. Unbelievable. The plan of redemption was here open to Abraham. In the death of Christ, the great sacrifice, and his coming in glory, Abraham saw also the earth restored to its Eden beauty. See, see, him coming to Canaan is a symbol of the eternal Canaan to come, to be given as an everlasting possession and the final and complete fulfillment of the promise. So Jesus on the cross was him taking Abraham's and our death on himself, but also his whole life was a path. Have you ever read this amazing phrase in Prophets and Kings? When Christ came to our world in the form of humanity, all were intensely interested in following him as he traversed, this is his whole life, step by step, the blood-stained path from the manger to Calvary. Jesus' whole life was a sacrifice. His whole life was a blood-stained path from the manger to Calvary. Now this, this blood pass ceremony that we just saw scholars of ancient history are so puzzled by it. I looked up what they say about it, even biblical scholars. They look at that and they go, we cannot make sense of this. Here's option one, two, and three, and we're not really sure what was going on there because ancient deities would never do a ceremony where they're taking a death penalty upon themselves, ancient deities would never do that, and therefore we can't make sense of this scenario in light of ancient history. I'm like, hello, that's the whole point. God is not ancient deities. The ancient deities were the foil, the demonic caricature of God. So this is a beautiful thing that by faith we can see that God himself was sacrificing himself and giving a foreshadowing of the cross. Now also, evangelical scholars don't um, don't get this right either because they say, let me just read this for you first. The Lord condescended to enter into a covenant. Yeah, so he's condescending, employing the forms that are customary among men at that time. So we might be like, this is a strange ceremony. Are we supposed to do this today? No, those were customary at that time. God condescended. No other ancient deity would consider such a thing. Now, the evangelical scholars get... Genesis 15 wrong also because they conclude that Abraham definitely did not walk the blood path because the Bible doesn't record Abraham as, ha- as having walked the blood path. And the absence of evidence brings certainty to their minds that he definitely did not. Now, the Bible doesn't say he did not, but the Bible does not say that he did. If you didn't follow that, I'm sorry. I, 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 I'll, I'll try to do it do it a little more slowly now. <laughs> the Bible does not say that Abraham walked the blood path. But does that mean necessarily that Abraham did not walk the blood path? No. We read in the spirit of prophecy that Abraham walked the blood path. So the lack of a mention of Abraham walking the blood path does not preclude the possibility that he did. And I don't call it a possibility because I believe in the spirit of prophecy. And so I believe it is a certainty that Abraham walked that blood path. And how else can we go just from the Bible? Because somebody may be like, spirit of prophecy, I don't know if I go on that. But somebody who's, who doesn't understand the, the gift of prophecy in the last days would, would, would simply look to this text, as we all would, and see that it says men, men, not just the flaming torch, not just God, men covenant before him when they cut in the calf in twain and pass between the parts. Abraham is asked by God to cut. The parts and make the blood path. It is assumed that he would then walk it because that's the whole point, as it says in Jeremiah. So, just that little uh, detail aside, it's a beautiful promise that we make a commitment to God, too. God asks us to make that commitment to him, to make a promise. We're having baptisms this afternoon. Isn't that a day of commitment? Isn't this day for you, revival and reformation, as we are walking to the city of God, a commitment? We must commit also to God. Now, of course, when we mess up, and we have, Jesus has taken on our death penalty. Don't ever lose the gospel power of that. And that's what makes me that much more inspired and empowered to commit and to follow through and walk faithfully with him, not in my own works. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Isn't that something? We die to self. We have a death to die too, don't we? So how can I not give my life to Christ? And I mean give my life to Christ. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life in Revelation chapter 2. I've read recently some amazing Adventist books that you can get at the ABC about faithful Adventist Christians in the darkness of atheistic, socialistic regimes. Soviet Union, Communist China, Vietnam, uh, The Man Who Lived Twice, The Seventh-day Ox, uh, Chains in China, these types of books. There's there's even more than I just named. Um, What strikes me about these men of God, when I read their story, is they, they always seem to have this refrain. If Jesus sacrificed so much for me, how can I not go through this for him faithfully as a witness? And it just brings me chills to know what they did. These just regular men became heroes of the faith. And you go back in Fox's Book of Martyrs and you look at the Reformers and just incredible things and you go, I could never do that. That's like over the top. How am I going to pull that off? Read these stories. Read the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And read the story most of all of Jesus Christ. But these, these men in these communist countries, they lost family. They were tortured. They were starved. In one case, put in a tiny box for weeks on end with nothing but, a, but, but, but your own waste to keep you company. But the spirit of Jesus Christ, ever-present. One was forced to stand waist-deep in a literal latrine of human waste to do an unnecessary make-work task of stirring the, stirring the sewage. Disgusting. So you can ask, can we face death in peace? Revelation 2, verse 10 Be thou faithful unto death, then I will give thee a crown of life. Maybe you've wondered, could I really do it? Could I really do what those martyrs did? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the question is just, how am I handling the hardships of today? Didn't Jesus say, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Um, in Matthew 6 verse 34. So we think those big picture thoughts, but but when it comes down to it, you know, how did I handle the guy that, you know, cut me off on the road or my my child who mouthed off to me or whatever, you know, happens in our day. That's a hardship and a struggle and a temptation. You know, Paul says we glory in tribulations. Oh, you're not going to ask me to pray for trials, are you brother? Yes. Paul says, we glory in the tribulations. How did he get there? That's just in the middle of the verse. I'll show you the whole verse in just a second. But another one, he says, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. How did this brother get to that point where he delights and glories in these things and takes pleasure in them? Well, where he says we also glory in tribulations, the beginning says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we've been there also in our study, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Justification by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we walk in peace, not in fear and anxiety, and how does God feel about me? I have a faith and a trust and a relationship with Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith. There it is again. Into his grace in which we falter, in which we buckle, no, in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So when we have done that, then we can face the tribulations with courage, with power, and a sound mind with the love of God. Knowing that tribulation, because we've got to go here now, if we're walking and traveling to the city of God, we're, ne- we're going to need to develop some perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope, because we know our destiny is heavenward, because we're on the right path, and we know in whom we have believed it. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now before I go back to 2 Corinthians, there was an interesting study that was done that got my attention. It was called the Mouse Utopia Experiment. Have you ever heard of this? They put all these mice in this living scenario that was super unnatural for mice. They didn't have any hardships whatsoever. It was the cushiest lifestyle they could imagine. All their food easily provided, plenty of mating opportunities, comfortable bedding, and we're going to live in this for a few generations and have a mouse society with overfed mice and not sufficient exercise, and it's just like, we're trying to to kind of um, mirror modern American uh, overprivileged existence that we enjoy, right? Well, no hardships whatsoever. Within a couple generations, the mice started acting totally crazy. Some isolated themselves socially. Others attacked other mice for no apparent reason. Mothers even attacked their babies. And you start seeing in these things a mirror of the breakdown of our social order. And this isn't meant solely for the social commentary of it, but does God want us as individuals and as a church and as a people to face some trials and hardships? There's another plug for country living. That one just came to mind. It wasn't in my notes, but it is hard, isn't it? I'll talk about country living in just a second. I do have that in the notes later. But here Paul said, pleasure in infirmities. Okay, how did he get there? Well, started with this lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given unto me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. We usually pray, God, please take away trials. A friend of mine challenged me recently to pray for trials. I thought, oh boy, I don't know if I'm up for that challenge. Paul was doing the natural thing here. This was quite, a, quite an affliction for him, of course. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. So, how, how, how does he boast in his infirmities? Because that the power of Christ. May rest upon me. You see, when we're in impossible situations, it takes not a finite, but an infinite God to provide the solution and the power. And if we don't have the faith and the trust and the opportunity for God to step in and demonstrate His power, then we get the illusion that we can handle this on our own, don't we? And that's not the walk of faith. I want the power of Christ, therefore, I take pleasure in my own infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. Make me weak, Lord, and in need of you, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Powerful text. The need for preparatory trials is also mirrored in the life of Christ. I left the last word of this blank, and I'm going to fill it in, but do you know what it is? Though Jesus were a son, yet he learned obedience. Oh, there's a whole sermon in itself right there. Jesus learned, he never sinned, but he learned obedience... We all have to learn obedience, don't we? Still, as adults. How did he learn obedience? By the things which he suffered. Wow. Lord, train my character by bringing me the needful trials as I travel to the city of God. Yet, even amid the suffering that results from sin, God's love is revealed. It is written that God cursed the ground for man's sake, it's for our sake. The thorn and the thistle, the difficulties and trials that make his life one of toil and care were appointed for his good as a part of the training needful in God's plan for his uplifting from the ruin and degradation that sin has wrought. Do you believe that? Do you seek that? Or do we try to escape trials and challenges? We try to escape toil and care. Give me a life of ease. Ah, man, that challenged me right there. I have a friend, Joshua White, who does a seminar on child development, he shared with me one time in his seminars, he shared this, There's, there, were, there were children that were studied who grew up in three different types of scenarios. One were kids that had no hardships, they were the spoiled ones. One was a group of kids, they looked at their adult life and, and they had ha- faced moderate amounts of hardships and challenges in life. And then there was a group who had endured trauma, abuse, the terrible types of trials that we would never wish upon somebody. And which group had the most emotional resilience, strength, and fortitude of perseverance as well-rounded adults? It was the middle group. It was not ease and being spoiled. It certainly wasn't trauma and abuse. It was we should be seeking the hardships of a certain degree in moderation. Mice in a box, two passageways at the end. We want to teach them to go through this one and not this one. So we're going to have them be shocked if they try to go through this passageway. They did three groups, a light shock, a medium shock, and a very intense shock to see which one would send the message the strongest to get the mouse to learn obedience. Guess what it was? It was the moderate shock again. It was the moderate shock, not the too intense, It's the Goldilocks version. God loves us. He'll give us just enough what we need. The moderate shock did the best. Now, country living is a hardship that I've faced in my life. I am from the city, and I found ease and comfort in the city, and wasn't something I wanted to do necessarily, but I read the book, and it said, now is the time. And I said, Lord, apparently now is the time. And so my wife and I, prayerfully, not hastily. Uh, some people do do it hastily, and by the way, if you're in that camp of uh, people you who know, fled out and they didn't know what they were doing, well, E.A. Sutherland wrote a book about that, And uh, the the ABC sells that and has a little description of how the step-by-step process of doing it prudently. It's a good book from city to country living. But um, somebody said to my wife and I, you guys are gonna hate it. You're gonna hate it out there. We actually, yeah, there are hardships. We love it. We would never go back. And um, another person said, I give you guys two years. And now we're determined to prove them wrong (laughs) by God's grace to show that God's leadings and callings are enablings. Now, um, we know that... our our, our path to heaven has already been forged by Jesus Christ, right? He has opened the door of salvation unto us, and salvation is by his merits alone. But I was alluding earlier to the fact that Abraham walked the blood path too, that we make a commitment, and we have to be faithful unto death by his grace, by his strength, by his power and love and sound mind. And I found this amazing vision that was given about 150 years ago and you can find it in Christian Experience and Teaching, page 179. And I want to read the whole vision to you because it fits perfectly with the theme, traveling to the city of God. And we're now, as we head toward the end here, talking about our journey on a blood-stained path, if you will. Not in the same sense of Jesus. His crucifixion and merits were sufficient. But that doesn't make our journey of the narrow road one of ease. This is the journey of the redeemed. As we journeyed on, the road grew narrower and steeper. Things will get harder as we go forward. In some places it seemed so very narrow, we concluded that we could no longer travel with the loaded wagons. Do we have some baggage of this world? We then loosed them from the horses, took a portion of the luggage from the wagons and placed it on the horses. So they left some of their luggage behind. You could see the symbolism here, whether it's materialism or the, the, the love of this world or the conveniences. They journeyed now on horseback, a little lighter load. As we progressed, the path still continued to grow narrow. We were obliged to press close to the wall. So it's on a path with a wall here and a precipice there, close to the wall to save ourselves from falling off the narrow road down the steep precipice. This is a different vision, by the way, than the early one about the midnight cry being the light and fixing our eyes on Jesus. That was the one that was shared last night. This is an, this is an additional one about a road to heaven. As we did this, the luggage on the horses Pressed against the wall and caused us to sway toward the precipice. We feared that we should fall and be dashed to pieces on the rocks. We then cut the luggage from the horses and it fell over the precipice. We continued on horseback, greatly fearing as we came to the yet narrower places in the road that we should lose our balance and fall. At such times, a hand seemed to take the bridle and guide us over the perilous way. As the path grew more narrow, we decided that we could no longer go with safety on horseback. And we left the horses and went on foot in single file, one following in the footsteps of another. You're not alone, are you? At this point, this is powerful, it gets miraculous small cords were let down from the top of the pure white wall. These we eagerly grasped to aid us in keeping our balance upon the path. As we traveled, the cord moved along with us, this reminds me of a certain hike at Glacier National Park where there's a cord attached to the, the, the precipice or the wall next to the precipice. And we went out there with our little kids and we were being very, very careful, holding to that cord for dear life. This one's moving along vertically, the cord coming down. Soon, the path finally became so narrow that we concluded that we could travel more safely without our shoes, so we slipped them from our feet and went on some distance without them. Soon we decided, it was decided that we could travel more safely without our stockings. These were removed and we journeyed on with bare feet. Have you ever read in the, the desire of ages that in the last days every earthly support will be cut off from God's people? We then thought of those who had not accustomed themselves to privations and hardships. Where were such now? They were not in the company. At every change, some were left behind. And only those only remained who had accustomed themselves to endure hardship. Said that twice there, didn't it? The privations of the way only made these more eager to press on to the end. Our danger of falling from the pathway increased. We pressed close to the white wall, yet could not place our feet fully upon the path, for it was too narrow. We then suspended nearly our whole weight upon the cords, exclaiming, We have hold from above! We have hold from above! The same words were uttered by all the company in the narrow pathway as we heard the sounds of mirth and revelry that seemed comfort to comfort come from the abyss below, we shuddered. We heard the profane oath, the vulgar jest, the low, vile songs. Think about our musical choices. We heard the war song and the dance song. We heard instrumental music and loud laughter mingled with cursing and cries of anguish and bitter wailing and were more anxious than ever to keep upon the narrow, difficult pathway. Much of the time, we were compelled to suspend our whole weight upon the chords, which increased in size as we progressed. I noticed that the beautiful white wall was stained with blood. It caused a feeling of regret, regret to see the wall thus stained. This feeling, however, lasted but for a moment as I soon thought that it was all as it should be. Those who are following after will know that others have passed the narrow, difficult way before them. It's evidence that others have gone before us, a great cloud of witnesses, and they will conclude that If others were able to pursue on their onward course, they can do the same. And as the blood shall be pressed from their aching feet. You see, this is our blood path, isn't it? They will not faint with discouragement. But seeing the blood upon the wall, they will know that others have endured the same pain. At length we came to a large chasm at which our path ended. There was nothing now to guide our feet, nothing upon which to rest them. Our whole reliance must be upon the cords, which had increased in size until they were as large as our bodies here we were for a time thrown into perplexity and distress we inquired in fearful whispers to what is the cord attached my husband was just before me large drops of sweat were falling from his brow the veins in his neck and temples were increased to double their usual size and suppressed agonizing groans came from his lips does this sound like the time of Jacob's trouble or what The sweat was dropping from my face, and I felt such anguish as I had never felt before. A fearful struggle was before us. Should we fall here, all the difficulties of the journey had been experienced for naught before us. On the other side of the chasm was a beautiful field of green grass about six inches high. I could not see the sun, but bright soft beams of light resembling fine gold and silver were resting upon the field. Nothing I had seen upon the earth could compare in beauty and glory with this field. But could we succeed in reaching it? Was the anxious inquiry. Should the cord break, we must perish. Again in whispered anxious, the words were breathed. What holds the cord? For a moment we hesitated to venture, then we exclaimed, Our only hope is to trust wholly in the cord. It has been our dependence all the difficult way. It will not fail us now. Still we were hesitating and distressed. The words were then spoken, God holds the cord. You need not fear. These words were then repeated by those behind us, accompanied with, He will not fail us now. He has brought us thus far in safety. My husband then swung himself over the fearful abyss into the beautiful field beyond. I immediately followed, and oh, what a sense of relief and gratitude to God we felt. I heard voices raised in triumphant praise to God. I was happy, perfectly happy. I awoke and found that from the anxiety I had experienced in passing over the difficult route, every nerve in my body seemed to be in tremor. This dream needs no comment. It made such an impression upon my mind that probably every item in it will be vivid before me while my memory shall continue. And may it be vivid before us as well, as we commit to our Lord, as we behold His love and His sacrifice, His merits, and walk faithfully, even unto death if need be, He will give us the crown of life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a a moving vision we've seen of the promise of heaven. We have hold from above. God holds the cord. Jesus Christ, thank you so much for doing what only could be done by you. An angel could not have done it. Our own death penalty could not have done it but you saved the human race by your sacrifice on the cross. We know we have nothing to fear lest we forget how you've carried us thus far. Lest we avoid hardships and challenges and commitments and seek ease and comfort and the cares of this life that crowd out the plant and choke it. We pray that you'd remove those things from us and we ask now for hardship. Free us from fear. We don't We don't want that. that We know that's of Satan. May we fear God and give glory to him, but give us power and love and a sound mind and give us the needful hardships for our journey heavenward as we travel to the city of God. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,